I'm uh, uh, Dave Miller. I think that's been up there a couple of times already. We're missionaries uh, of this church to Latin America, but we're based here in Philadelphia. <clears throat> and I want to turn our attention now to the, uh, the scriptures and Philippians chapter 4. We're t- returning again to our series in Philippians, and I want to I'm going to pick on somebody to read this. Uh, Guillermo Succo, you look uh, innocent and, you know, would you please read uh, with a big voice uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9 in English, please. Okay, amen. Thank you, Guillermo. Very good. You handled that well. Um, I don't think I have to say much uh, today to convince you that we are a a society in turmoil. We are a nation that is divided. And peace is not really uh, the mark of our, our country Uh, Although we still have relative peace, uh, in in many ways, much more peace in our country than many other nations around the world. But we are moving in a direction of peacelessness, if that's a word. Esther and I had a young couple over to our house yesterday for lunch. And uh, I asked them what their thoughts were for raising their family and living as Christians as they look to the future. And... uh, it, it was unsettling to them. I could tell it was unsettling. And uh, they, uh, they went in the right direction. Oh, this thing's working, huh? Am I not on the other thing, Pete? Am I on the... Because I'm going to probably dance around a little bit. Uh, all right. Um, but the question was unsettling to them. And uh, as we come to our study of Philippians chapter 4 this morning, what I see developing here is kind of a, a, mind, a mind theme. 
And I hope you'll, I hope you'll see that as we, as we move through this. And so I'm calling this sermon The Mind of Faith. And you have an outline there in uh, the, the bulletin. Paul is, Paul is in this uh, text, he's giving us a formula, if you will. And I, you know, those of you that know me know that I, I hate formulas. You know, I hate five steps to a better marriage and six steps to financial security or whatever. I, you know. Um, but Paul's giving us here a, a formula for finding peace of mind in the midst of turmoil. And what I want us to see here is that living by faith in Jesus is the pathway to experiencing true peace of mind. And so I see three things that Paul's developing here, uh, and they are, uh, your outline there, be of the same mind in verses 2 and 3, and then keep in mind verses 4 through 7, uh, the Lord is at hand. And then finally, um, mind your mind. Uh, for those of you that don't know Old English that well, that means guard, watch out, guard your mind. So that's what I want to look at today. And Paul starts out, first of all, by saying that we are to be of the same mind. And he, he, you know, he doesn't actually use that phrase here. He's used that before uh, in chapter 2 and verse 2. But he mentions here two women, uh, Uodia and Syntyche, and they were evidently having trouble, or the way, actually the way this phrase is constructed, they, they could be having trouble, or they didn't yet have trouble, but Paul was warning them, guard this, guard your unity. Um, and then, of course, he tells uh, the one who's receiving Philippians to help these two women. So Paul, you know, that's a phrase that for us in our culture, to be of one mind is difficult for us to get our, our minds around because we celebrate diversity. Diversity has become almost a cult-like phenomenon in our society, we celebrate diversity. So what can it mean for us in the church that we're supposed to be of one mind? Well, Paul, as I said, he's already spoken about this in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and he says this, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord, and of one mind. He actually repeats himself. So he's talking here about agreeing, and the important phrase is, in the Lord. Agreeing in the Lord. And what does that mean? How... What does it mean for us to agree in the Lord? Well, you know, Paul has already answered that question in chapter 2 as he continues to talk about Christ Jesus himself who shows us the pattern. And you have that classic passage in chapter 2 where Paul talks about Jesus who though he was God, he laid aside 
his, uh, well, I shouldn't say it that way. That's not theologically correct. He did not lay aside his divinity. He covered it. It was shadowed. It was hidden so that it wasn't up front and center. And he, even though, Paul says, even though he was God, he didn't grasp that. He didn't hang on to that. And I think that's getting at the heart of what Paul means when he says to us to be of one mind. There should be nothing in your life except Jesus and the gospel that you grasp onto in such a way that it drives people away from you. Do you follow me? And so it's the gospel and it's Jesus that is at the center. And we can have a diversity of, of opinion on other things. You know, I, um, I like Johnny Cash. And uh, he writes a little song that is uh, it's, it's not very popular. I'm not going to sing it for you. But um, the words go like this. There once was a musical troupe, a picking, singing folk group. They sang the mountain ballads and the folk songs of our land. They were long on musical ability. Folks thought they would go far. But political incompatibility led to their downfall. And then the chorus goes, the one on the right was on the left. The one in the middle was on the right. The one on the left was in the middle, and the one in the rear was a Methodist. <laughs> I have to go, uh, this is really an uh, interesting song. The musical aggregation toured the entire nation, singing the traditional ballads and the folk songs of our land. They performed with great virtuosity, and soon they were the rage. But political animosity prevailed upon the stage. The one on the right, the one on the left, the one in the middle, and the one in the rear burned his driver's license. Well, the curtain had ascended, a hush fell on the crowd. As thousands were gathered to hear the folk songs of our land, but they took their politics seriously. And that night at the concert hall, as the audience watched deliriously, they had a free-for-all. And then it goes on, uh, now this should be a lesson if you plan to start a folk group. Don't go mixing politics with the folk songs of our land. Just work at harmony and diction, play your banjo well, and if you have political convictions, keep them to yourself. Now the one on the left works in a bank, the one in the middle drives a truck, the one on the right an all-night DJ, and the guy in the rear got drafted. So he's talking about us making music together. Whether or not you should completely keep your political convictions to yourself is it's another matter for discussion. But the point of this is that, the, you know, you cannot, you're not going to be able to make gospel music. We are not going to be able to make gospel music as a church if we grasp on to things that are secondary. And we need to have wisdom for that, and I think Paul gives us wisdom for that. The other thing is that we are, um, what it is that keeps us from having a free-for-all here in the church 
is that we had a certain mindset, not only, not only that we were one in the Lord, but we were one in the gospel. And so we work, as, as Paul says in verse 3, you see he describes these two women as those who labored side by side with him in the gospel. You see, it, the gospel gives us a new perspective on one another. And I don't, I don't have time to flesh this out a lot, but, if, you know, there's a very popular passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. I'm sure some of you know it. It's the passage that says that if any man is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. We read that, especially as uh, Americans, and we, we, we read that for ourselves. Oh, I'm a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That is not the context of that passage. The context of that passage is now the way that I view others. Paul talks about, he starts out that text by talking about how I used to look at Christ himself after the flesh. I used to look at Jesus and think, wow, he, he's a, a great prophet. He's a good teacher. He's a lunatic. However, you, look, you used to look at Jesus, but now, Paul says, I look at Jesus with the eyes of faith, and he's my savior. He's the savior of the world. Now I look at my brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way. I look at, I won't name names. <laughs> I look at you differently. I see a new creation. The old has gone. There is hope. That makes us one in the Lord. It totally changes our perspective. And so we get beyond political proclivities. We get beyond race. We get beyond economics. We get beyond geography. We get beyond neighborhoods. There's lots of division in our city, even among neighborhoods. We get beyond that stuff. Because I can look at each of one of you with different eyes. I can look at you with hope. And we're going we're gonna to come back to that. There's a theme that Paul develops throughout the book of um, uh, Philippians that I want to come back to in that regard. But it's faith that eliminates. It's faith in Jesus and in the gospel that eliminates racism and prejudice. Do you believe that? So... Where, but where does the ability to live like that come from? To be one in mind. So that's my first point. Paul says, if you want to have peace of mind, be one in Jesus and in the gospel. But secondly, he says, to keep in mind, those are my words, he says, the Lord is at hand. And I, I believe that little phrase, uh, I think it's found down in verse like 8, or verse... Um, where is it? In verse 5, thank you. He says, keep in mind that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. I'm saying keep it in mind. <laughs> keep it front and center. How's this, how's this work? Well, first of all, he gives us three things that we're supposed to do all the time. We're to rejoice all the time. We're to be reasonable all the time. And we're to be praying all the time. Rejoice all the time. Now, he, he does not mean by that to be happy all the time. 
Happiness is when I get to take my grandkids to Knobles and go for the first time with my oldest grandson on the Phoenix. That is true happiness. <laughs> That's circumstantial. I love roller coasters. And I'm trying to train my grandchildren well, you know, to love the roller coaster, to love the wildness. Have any of you ever been on the Phoenix? It's really cool. I think it's rated one of the top ten coasters in the country. Well, it used to be, I think, you know, years ago. It's a very old wooden roller coaster. So that's happiness, and that's based on the right circumstances in my life. And so Paul can't mean... Uh, he, he also can't mean that we're just supposed to rejoice when the circumstances are right. Because he repeats himself. He says, I say again, rejoice. He is serious about rejoicing all the time in every circumstance in your life. How do we get there? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this. The second thing he says is that we're to be reasonable all the time. Um, let your reasonableness be known. If you are known as a reasonable man, that means there's a pattern of reasonableness there so that you know people are going to pick up a pattern. You might be reasonable on Monday, but the rest of the month you're not reasonable. People are not going to know you as a reasonable person. So Paul is talking about this being a pattern of life that is, is known. That's why I said be reasonable all the time. Um, this word reasonable, as it's translated here in our English Standard Version, can also mean gentle. Be gentle. Uh, it's a little bit of a difficult word to translate. A good, if you want a good definition, a good definition of this word is found in James chapter 3 and verse 17. Just listen to this. Um, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. There's the word. That's the same word that we have in, uh, is it verse 8 there? Open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's a reasonable person. Um, he, he uses this word also, Paul uses this word also in Titus chapter 3, so it's a, it's a word uh, that he likes. And uh, in, in Titus chapter 3, he, he, it's translated gentle again, and then the old King James uh, version gives you an, sort of the opposite. Be gentle, be no brawler. Who knows what a brawler is? <laughs> We don't talk much like that anymore. Uh, you know, some of you here are brawlers, but probably not many of us refer to you as such. We don't use that word. You may have heard of a brawl. Well, again, I, uh, I was uh, reading a book to one of my grandkids about some of our American legends. You know, Johnny Cash got me started on a, a legend theme here. And I was reading to my grandson about Davy Crockett. And uh, you know, some, are you familiar with some of the legendary figures of our history in the United States? Paul Bunyan. Have you heard of Paul Bunyan? John Henry. Uh, Sally Thunder. 
Uh, she's not quite as well-known. There's another guy named Mike Fink, and he's not a real well-known guy, but he was a real man that was born around Pittsburgh, and he was a, kneel, a, a keelboat operator on the Mississippi and the Ohio rivers. And he had a reputation for being, uh, he was an excellent marksman, but he also had a reputation of being really hard-drinking and hard-living character, and he gets in all kinds of trouble up and down the Mississippi River in, ho in the hotels and bars along there. He's always starting fights. Mike Fink's a brawler. Uh, if you want to see uh, Mike Fink reenacted, this is for all you uh, young men here, um, you can watch the Walt Disney series of Davy Crockett, and Mike Fink shows up in there in a, in a keelboat race with Davy Crockett. Um, but he said... The legend is that he was half man and half alligator. Um, you don't reason with an alligator. You know, you can't sit down and sort of talk things through with an alligator. When we lived in Costa Rica, we saw alligators several times. And, uh, you know, you don't, they're, they're not, you can't reason with an alligator at all. So this is Mike Fink. He was an unreasonable man and was always getting into fights. Don't be like Mike Fink, for those of you that watched the Davy Crockett series. Ben loved Davy Crockett about 20 years ago, 15 years ago. <laughs> Secondly, or thirdly, he says, I'm going to come back to, you know, what we're supposed to do, okay? He says that we're to pray all the time. Now, rejoicing all the time and in all circumstances goes hand in hand with praying all the time. And he says that we are to, we are to pray in everything. We are to pray, which is talking to God, in supplication, which is asking God for things, and in, in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in all things. And I believe the Bible is teaching us all things. Paul Miller um, is uh, my boss now. And in his book on uh, a praying life, he shares a, he shares a little story about his mother that I've actually had the privilege of hearing him tell in person. It's very interesting. Paul's talks about how he went to a prayer seminar uh, at one point, and while the seminar overall was really good, at one point in this uh, seminar, the speaker said that you shouldn't bother God with, you know, the insignificant and trivial things of your life, like trying to find a parking space. Well, a few days later, Paul was with his mother, Rosemary, which, who's also um, Ruth Ann's mother, or um, Roseanne's mother, and uh, Paul was sharing this with his mother. This guy said that we're not supposed to bother God with, with uh, concerns about trying to find a parking space. And Paul said, my mom looked at me with this confused look and held out her hands and said, how else do you find a parking space? <laughs> that, where, where, where does that come from? That is a childlike dependence on my father for every single thing in my life. And you can go there. 
That's what, that's what um, the apostle is laying out for us here. Now, being in um, prayer, rejoicing, being a reasonable person, and praying all the time leads to peace of mind. Maybe you can figure that out already. Uh, and that's the theme of my sermon. That's how you get to peace of mind. That doesn't mean that life isn't difficult. That doesn't mean that there's things that keep you awake sometimes at night. But you can move toward peace of mind as you're practicing these simple things. Yeah, real simple. Simple things that Paul, three easy steps uh, that Paul lays out for us here. But what's the basis for that? What's, what's behind it? How do we do it? And I believe that what Paul's getting at here is in that little phrase, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Keep that in mind. The Lord is at hand. So what does it mean? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a two, there's a twofold meaning. That's a little bit of an obscure phrase for us. The Lord is at hand. What does Paul mean? Well, he, he means, he can mean that his coming is at hand. We believe in the Christian church that Jesus is coming again. He's coming back. And he is not coming as a babe. You know, there's a bumper sticker that I've seen that says, Jesus is coming back, and boy, is he P.O.'d. <laughs> there, I... That's an offensive sticker, but there is truth to that. He's not coming back as the gentle Jesus, the meek and mild. He's coming back as a judge. He's coming back to deliver you. He's coming back to make everything right and to set everything right in the world, to judge the wicked and to bless those who trust in him. That's what we believe. And that's at hand. And we can live, even though we don't know when that's going to be, we live with that in the back of our minds. He's at hand. And it's a, Paul is actually referencing here, I believe, a theme that you see throughout the book of Philippians of resurrection. Um, and that's the second point that he's alluding. It's, it's referring to the future and his coming, which could happen at any moment. But he's also talking about that he's at hand right now in resurrection power. That's what you see throughout Philippians. Resurrection is a dominant theme throughout Philippians. And so what that means is that Jesus is resurrected and he's alive and well and he is near. He's here. He's here in this room. He did not die and resurrect, and ascend into heaven, and evaporate. <laughs> That's how we live, right? Paul is reminding us, he's here, he's present, he's near, he's near right now. And, that, and so that's what informs this. That's what informs our minds and our hearts. I can rejoice because I know that the Lord is in the circumstances in my life to bring me good and not evil. The Father is not angry at you if your life doesn't look too happy. 
Things may look evil, but I know that the Lord Jesus intends them for my good, as, as Joseph said to his brothers. You intended evil. God meant this for good to save many lives. So God is at, at, up, to, up to good in our lives, and we can go there. It's an act of the mind and of the will to move yourself in that direction. Jesus is near, and I can rejoice in my circumstances even though they don't look good. I can be reasonable and gentle with you because Jesus is at hand. He's at hand to give me a heart of love for you. And there's enough resurrection power available to me now so I can afford to be gentle and reasonable with you. Do you see it? Do you follow it? There's power available. And prayer is the capstone of all of this because Jesus is near, because Jesus is near and he is for me, I can pray for everything because I'm dependent on my father, like Rosemary, looking for a parking space. Rosemary lives in London, so it's a minor miracle to find a parking space in London. It is actually a big deal in London. But I can, I can, I'm dependent on my heavenly father for everything. And so it's in prayer, listen to this, people. It's in prayer that I tap into the promises of God. And what is... You can remember this if you forget the rest of my sermon. What is the primary promise of the gospel? Who knows? Does anybody know? What's the primary promise? I should say who is the primary promise. Does that give it away? We're saved, but who is the primary promise? Jesus by his spirit. The Spirit is the primary promise of the gospel. How do we get the Spirit? Who knows that question? How do you get the Spirit? Luke, Luke 11, 1 to 13. You ask. You ask for the Spirit. And so you ask for the Spirit all day long. <laughs> When I'm driving and I am impatient and ready to run the guy in front of me over, which uh, you can talk to my wife about that, I can pray to the Spirit, Lord, give me patience with this knucklehead. When I am, my wife comes to me about a problem, and you know us men don't bring too many problems, man. I can't handle that. I can't handle this problem. I ask for the spirit. I ask for the spirit of wisdom. I ask for the spirit of love. I ask for the spirit of peace. I ask for the spirit of power. You ask Jesus to give you his spirit. And so see, that's what enables us to do these things that Paul is calling us to. Being reasonable, being in prayer, um, and being of one mind with one another. Paul says finally that we are to mind our mind, is the way I put this. Mind your mind, guard your mind. This is, um, he says finally, 
uh, again. Uh, the word finally uh, doesn't mean finally. Uh, it means of utmost importance. This is the most important thing, Paul says. Finally, think on the following things. Uh, and then he gives us a list of things here. This is Paul's version of Proverbs 4.23. It's a proverb that I memorized when I was a boy. I would highly recommend you parents teach this to your children. Guard your heart. When I memorized it, I had no idea what it was talking about. Guard your heart because out of it are the issues of life. The way the ESV puts it is, is keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart by thinking on these things. Now, I was tempted uh, this morning uh, to come up with a list of things uh, that we might be spending a lot of time thinking about, like um, YouTube fail videos, uh, Game of Thrones, Halo 3, Halo 5, <laughs> how many are there, Halo 6, Snapchat, Ameritrade, the Philadelphia Inquirer, although, does anybody get the Philadelphia Inquirer? Maybe I should scratch that off the list. Okay. <laughs> Fox News, the Weather Channel, MSNBC. Netflix, or oh, uh, telenovelas. Who, who knows what telenovelas are? You have to be a little bit Latina. <laughs> All my uh, Latinas, my, mis amigas Latinas, saben, <laughs> Mariela. A telenovela is a soap opera. They are super popular in Latin America. Uh, but I won't. I won't go to that list. <clears throat> uh, I, I, I'm reluctant to do that. I, you know, some of those things are good and have merit. And I'm really reluctant to place laws on people. So do not, you know, take that as the law from Jesus. But do you guys notice anything that almost all of those things have in common? except for Scott Ashman's Philadelphia Inquirer. <laughs> you notice anything? What do all those things have in common? Where do you access them? On a screen. Lee Henderson, Lee, I'm sorry, I didn't ask you if, you're, if he's here. Uh, I didn't ask Lee if I could talk about him this morning. But Lee Henderson sent around an article uh, it was entitled, Are Smartphones Destroying a Generation? And it was actually written by a, a psychologist who has studied trends, behavior trends in young people since uh, actually beginning like in the 1930s. And she is seeing a trend that is like nothing else uh, she's ever seen before, including things like World War II. Um, and it's about the effect that screen time is having on the millennial generation, and which is 
those that are born between 1995 and 2015. Do we have any people here like that? Um, it, it's disturbing. But, and there, the, the big trend that is happening, there's some positive things that are happening, actually, like um, murder rates are going down, and uh, there's less, uh, oh, what was the other thing? I can't remember it now. But the disturbing trend is just depression and suicide is skyrocketing with this generation. And this psychologist traces it to this screen time thing. And the, the fact that the millennials are not able to engage people anymore, and they are holding themselves up, secluding themselves, and they can't engage. It's really troubling uh, to me. Um, and the main point of this article is simply lay your phone down. It's like the Apostle Paul saying, think on these things. So what does Paul, let's move, it, let's move on to the positive. What does Paul say uh, we should think on? I decided to let you guys preach at each other right here uh, with a little help from me. Uh, we'll do an interactive sermon for a few, a few minutes here. Uh, Paul says, look at your Bible in verse... Um, uh, verse 8, he says, uh, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. What are some, what are some things that are uh, just? Let's, let's focus just on the word true because there's a sense in which the other things below um, flow out of that and, and I don't have time to develop all of them. So what is true? Let me ask you, what is the source of truth? God, where? In the Bible. And who, there's, if you're really going to be a good theologian this morning, there's two sources of truth. One is the Bible, the other one's a person. Who is it? The Spirit. The Spirit of God and the Word of God together are the source of truth for us. That's foundational for you as a Christian. So the Spirit of God is never going to tell you to rob that car that's got the keys in it. <laughs> or to steal that car that has the keys in it. You get my drift? The Spirit of God always works in conjunction with the Word of God to bring truth into our lives. So let's look at God's Word then. Let's just look at the first book in the Bible. It's a very, very important book. What does it tell us? What are some truths that come out of the book of Genesis? We're created. We fell. He created us male and female. Do we need to hear that today? Ladies, I'm so glad you came up with that. That is so, fa it's so important. We don't need the confusion. I mean, that doesn't mean we don't love people, but God, we can say with love and compassion, God created you, Steve, a male. He created others female. What are some other things that you see? Who was, who was there at the beginning? <laughs> God. It, the, book, the Bible starts out, in the beginning, God. Uh, somebody said, we fell. I don't, it doesn't leave us there. What else do you find in chapter 3 of Genesis, which is where the fall takes place? What else do you find? 
Yeah, there's redemption. How? What does it look like? That's the gospel. God is going to bring redemption through the woman to stamp the head of the serpent who tempted us into falling. What are some other truths that come out of the book of Genesis? Amen. He is gathering a people for himself. It didn't start with the Reformation in 1500. It started in Genesis. I say that for those of you that aren't Presbyterians. You know, we Presbyterians are all hung up on the 16th century. So, which is, you know, not all bad. But, yeah, God has been gathering a people for himself beginning with Adam. He calls a people to himself. In fact, one of the things, this is kind of in Genesis, but you have to pay a lot of money and go to seminary to see this. But the Bible, the whole Bible is the story of God saving a people for himself. That is the purpose of the Bible. It's not a book about how to have family necessarily. It's not a book about how to be happy in your marriage necessarily. It speaks to that. It's not about um, archaeology and genie. It's, it's not about that. It's not a science book. It's about redemption, and it's about God saving a people for himself. And he's at work at, the, at that today with us here. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. And so Paul says, think on these things. I wish... You know, we had time for some of you to flesh out what are some honorable things, what are some excellent things to think on. I, I, my own testimony is that when I was a, a young person, around 20 years old, I grew up in a home where you, we were not allowed to listen to rock and roll. And uh, I could not listen to it uh, until my dad abandoned our family. Then I started listening to rock and roll. And I bought a car, and I put a tape deck in my car. Do you remember those things? <laughs> All the old guys are laughing. I put a tape deck in my car, and I probably ended up buying somewhere around 200 uh, tapes. What did they call those things? Eight-track tapes. I read this verse at one point when I was around 20 years old, and I decided I had to throw all those tapes out. Why? Because they were all bad? No, not necessarily. But... Uh, it was taking control of my mind. Do you guys have that problem with maybe some of the music that you listen to? Or I don't know. You know, it just keeps going around and around and around in your head and you can't get it out. What you put in is what comes out. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And the Apostle Paul says, think about this. And then he goes on, he says one more thing. He says, be like me. Paul actually says that in his epistles six times. Be like me. And of course what he means is that we're to be like him as he is like Jesus. And one of the things that I'm learning about Jesus right now in my life is, and and I'll close with this, is that there's a pattern that you can see in the life of Jesus in in the New Testament 
and I hope to be, I'm hoping I'm going to be able to flesh this out in a class that I hope to be doing. I, maybe I shouldn't bring this up, but I hope to be teaching a class in, in October, starting in October. A pattern that you can see in the life of Jesus, and it goes to this seeing thing. Jesus sees people. And that is a phrase that you find a lot. He looks at people and then he's moved with compassion, and then he does something for them. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. So, you know, picking up on the screen time thing, Jesus is looking at you. He sees you. His heart is moved with compassion for you today. He's here. He's at hand. He's looking. He's seeing you. And he will, he has acted for you at the cross. And as you embrace that and pick up your cross and follow him, he brings peace of mind into your heart. And we, uh, many of us in this room have experienced that. The peace that comes from God that, as Paul says, is beyond comprehension. So this is like a theme of the mind, and he ends up by talking about something that's incomprehensible. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? And it's all because of Jesus. We have it in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.